HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And this is Greenhorns Radio, radio from Sonoma to Brooklyn. The little dancing oat grasses are coming into their tawny stage, and all is well where I am. Got to head back to the East Coast. We had an amazing symposium last weekend, just yes, day before yesterday, and then uh, Michael Pollan's class, uh, which is huge. We told them about the Grange movement and told them about the homestead. Uh, sorry, the we didn't talk about the homestead. We talked about the Williamson Act, other things. Um, a lot of a lot of good things are happening. And today I'm talking to Peter. Hi, Peter. Hey, Severin. How's it going over there? Where are you? It's going well. I'm in uh, uh, right outside of Viola, Wisconsin, which is in southwest Wisconsin in the Driftless area, and. Um, We've had two, three days in a row of really hard rain, but uh, had a little bit of a break today before it starts back up this afternoon. We've been uh, planting trees all day. Oh, spring rain. Yep, yep, lots of it. And you've got a lot of planting going on, so this is maybe just exactly what you needed. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's perfect for growing grass, which we need, and it's also perfect for planting trees, which is just awesome. So let's talk a little bit about the radical premise under which you are operating your home farm there. Uh, tell us what's what's your what's your mission and vision right there. Well, um, our we just bought a farm and we are uh, planting lots of trees and grazing lots of different kinds of animals. And our sort of vision is. Uh, restoring the semblance of a functional ecosystem here, modeled on the kinds of ecosystems that were here in the past, and uh, doing it in a way that grows lots of food for people. So let's get a little more specific. Um, your lineage, you're coming out of the restoration 
agriculture lineage. Um, yep. Will you give a little bit of background about the Wisconsin uh, Mastodonic Permaculture Tribe and, and some of the precepts that you're operating under? And, and, and I'll maybe a little, too, also the, the context of Wisconsin agriculture, which really is under underestimated by uh, people often in other parts of the country. We don't think about Wisconsin enough. So give us some backstory, if you wouldn't mind. Sure, that's a big question. Um, so Wisconsin is in the upper Midwest. We have really awesome soil, and we have long winters, um, but we grow uh, lots of things really well. And around here, it's all corn and beans, and increasingly so in the last few years. Um, but where I'm coming from, personally, as a, as a former sort of academic ecologist for the past uh, 12 years or so, um, is really coming at this from a, a, a restoration perspective uh, and trying to restore ecosystems that our planet and the people that live here need to continue to uh, survive things like climate stability, building fertile soils, sequestering carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it into the soils, uh, cleaning water, renewing the groundwater, all things that we sort of need and kind of take for granted for a long time. But uh, so we look at the way the ecosystems functioned here uh, prior to humans coming here, uh, prior to white people coming here in the 1800s, uh, which was a very fire-dominant ecosystem, a prairie oak savanna, um, sort of managed by Native Americans for about 10,000 years. And then prior to that, um, it was uh, megafauna everywhere, uh, no people, and uh, also sort of a savanna um, biome. Uh, a lot of the families of plants that are that evolved here are sort of super high quality uh, fruit and nut producing plants uh, that feed mammals. And it's, so it's a pretty cool sort of genetic base to work from because for the last well, at least 10 million years, really high quality uh, nuts in the form of acorns from oaks and uh, hickory nuts and walnuts and then also um, Fruits, apples, pears, plums, all that uh, evolved to feed large uh, browsing and grazing animals like mastodon, sloths, and all the big megafauna that were here before, um, but also are really awesome, tasty, delicious, and nutritious food for humans. So we try to model our sort of the way we graze and the way we plant trees to mimic the way it might have been before and to, uh, in order to be able to ramp up the functionality of the ecosystem so that we can do things like sequester carbon and build up soil. So let's talk a little bit, I mean, uh, let's talk a little bit about the literature that you're drawing from in your school. Um, are you doing readings in the, in the direction of Paul Shepard and the kind of Pleistocene? Uh, Pleistocene you mean Paul Martin? Ecology? Yeah, a broad swath of, of literature has been developed from different disciplines. Um, in the field of biology and ecology, uh, one of the best texts I've seen is uh, called Mega Herbivores, uh, the, very, the, the role of large body size on ecology. And it's a guy who is in Africa looking at elephants and rhinos and the effect of those large mammals on ecosystems. And then Paul Martin with his uh, theory of humans being the ones that drove the Pleistocene extinctions. Um, but there's a, there's a broad swath of research 
uh, paleo uh, and paleoecology uh, to draw from. Uh, yeah, because hickory nuts, yeah, it's always kind of perplexing. Like, wow, in what context did this emerge? Right, right, totally. All these really awesome plants. I mean, pawpaws and persimmons and uh, just these really cool fruits that um, you know evolved with in the with the emergence of flowering plants and pollination and mammals over the last 60 million years since the dinosaurs. You know, really, really cool plants to work from. And so, as we're restoring the eco- ecosystems here, we're looking to plant the varieties of those that are high, highly productive uh, and disease-resistant, and then also use grazing animals to manage the grass and the rest of the vegetation in ways that uh, just boost the functioning of the ecosystem. So you're kind of almost like recreating a, a wild savanna, farming with the wild or farming like wild. Uh, but will you Yeah, totally. I mean, that's, we're, we're kind of in a rewilding experiment, uh, both, I think, probably ourselves a little bit personally, but, you know, our cows are wild. It's really difficult to, uh, like, load them in a trailer and take them to the slaughterhouse if you need to do that because they're kind of getting naturalized, so. Well, um, I just wanted to pause for one moment because I know there's going to be people listening to the podcast who do not know what a pawpaw is. And um, I would like yeah, to hear Yeah, pawpaws your are um, a native uh, plant. It's an understory, uh, small tree, kind of grows a lot in the Appalachian Mountains and in the south. Uh, in, they call it the Indiana banana in Indiana. It's a member of the papaya family. It's the only sort of member of the tropical, the tropical fruits that we think of, the, member in, the only member in North America for many of those kind of plant families. Um, and it's got a very delicious, sweet, custardy uh, texture and flavor. And the reason most people don't know of it, never heard of it, is you can't really transport it. It's very perishable. So once you pick it, you've got to eat it pretty fast. And so it's never been a commodity. Um, but uh, in the South and Midwest, uh, a lot of people that spend a lot, of, a lot of time outside know all about pawpaws and look forward to them every, every summer. Get a pawpaw in your paw. It's like a melting mango. I mean, it's out yeah, of the Yeah, 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 exactly. It's like ice cream. Oh, man. Oh, they're so good. So let's talk about nursery work. I mean, you're clearly a plantsman and obsessive about trees and obsessive about the relationship between trees and the space between them and what you protect them with from the deer and... Uh, how do you how do you manifest a forest on your land? Uh, you do that by buying in all your trees, or are you propagating, or what's your methodology around that? Um, we're doing a lot of different things. Um, uh, we were able to get quite a bit of uh, bare root stock this year of quite a number of different trees. Uh, we're kind of focusing on trees that are good for livestock because uh, that's kind of the the centerpiece of our kind of business model is, is raising livestock. And so the most we can minimize any inputs to that, the better. So we're planting lots of uh, mulberries, which the fruit, is, it lasts longer part of the summer than most other fruits, and pigs really like it. And then the leaves um, is really high. It's actually got more protein in it than alfalfa. 
for cattle, and the cattle really like it. And it's kind of weedy, and it can take a beating. So you can kind of graze it pretty hard, and it'll it'll stick around and uh, do okay. So we're planting a lot of trees like that, as well as uh, hazelnuts that we're getting from uh, Mark Shepard's genetics. So I've been renting his place um, for the past three years, grazing and uh, working with the tree crops. And now we're bringing a bunch of his genetic material in terms of um, chestnuts, hazelnuts, um, and some others. And uh, we're also going to be collecting a lot of seed this year. And the the soil of the farm we just bought is uh, really sandy soil, and we've got a spring, so we're kind of totally set up to to have nursery beds. So we're going to do that this fall with with a lot of seed. But we're just kind of doing it, getting genes from as many places as possible. So the amount of work that you're doing right now that's unremitting. Will you tell us about getting your systems all off the ground? <laughs> uh, by the seat of our pants, uh, every day trying to figure out what to do today. Uh, but um, we're buying animals to, to graze this summer and finish, uh, both um, pregnant cows that we're going to start developing our own calves so we can develop our own genetics and finish animals that we can raise for their whole life on our farm, which is kind of important to us. We're also... Uh, raising up pigs and sheep and goats and chickens and turkeys, doing egg layers and uh, uh, turkeys and pigs. So we're just getting it all started. We're uh, setting up all the fences. We're going to be doing uh, rotational grazing, and we're using the the. We're going to set up. We're setting up fences with electric fencing for paddocks, and then we're going to be planting trees along those paddocks. So eventually, we're going to have paddocks that don't need electric fence theoretically if we can build a solid sort of interior living fence uh, that can uh, act as the paddock boundary uh, instead of having to move around electric fence every year, which I've been doing for the last three years and looking forward to a day when I don't have to do that. Um, but uh, So we're using plants like hawthorns, mulberries, hazelnuts, uh, hickories, and oaks as uh, living fences, planting them pretty close together to define these boundaries uh, of the paddocks. And some of those paddock lines are actually what uh, we call key lines, or a line across the landscape, almost on a little bit less, um, that moves water from the valley to the ridge. So we kind of dig swales and then plant trees along those swales. So we're going to have these paddocks that are actively soaking in moisture uh, that would otherwise run off in the valley um, and planting trees and using those to move the animals around. All of this diversity that you're applying to your blank slate there of your farm, or not really blank, but the raw land that you brought, what's, what's driving you forward in this intense creative period? How, are you, um, how do you calm down at night to sleep? Uh, I have no problem going to sleep at night because uh, I'm usually pretty tired because I try to get a lot of done, done during the day. Um, then I usually wake up about 4 o'clock in the morning wide awake and then think for about an hour about what I need to do that day, get it all worked out in my head, and then go do it. Mm-hmm.